Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson, and you're listening to Double Read Dish. A podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. As our field increasingly needs us to be more creative, more innovative, and more effective, a career in music can be approached in a lot of different ways. In our new bonus episode series, Mavericks, we bring you the voices of some of the Double Read community's biggest trailblazers, each forging their musical path in their own unique way. For our first Mavericks episode, we couldn't think of anyone better than bassoonist Lacolian Washington. Lacolian, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it. Could we have you start off by telling us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Um, yeah, I am Lacolian Washington, as you mentioned before. Uh, I, uh, For the last 12 years, I have been the bassoon professor at the University of Memphis. Um, I also started an organization in Memphis called the uh, PRISM Ensemble, and it was originally a chamber group, but we expanded our work out uh, several years ago uh, to include several youth development uh, components to the work that we did and some community engagement work as well. Um, based on that work, I was then um, brought on as a, really I was a part of an advisory council uh, for a program that uh, I guess ended up becoming the Memphis Music Initiative. And uh, they brought me on as a consultant to help them create a teaching artist uh, fellowship program. And I did a consultancy period for several months, helping them create a selection process, uh, selecting the teaching artists as well as selecting the uh, um, the schools as well. And that was my role in the beginning. And then they asked me to come on to be the director of in-school programs. And this was around early 2015. So I've been uh, supporting the work with MMI, uh, Memphis Music Initiative, also MMI. I've been supporting w- the work with them from the very beginning. Uh, I originally was reaching out to them as a funding source, uh, and they ended up uh, being a funding source for the PRISM Ensemble, and they also brought me on board to help them create a teaching artist program because PRISM had some in-schools programs, and so they wanted me to help them create one as well. And I just recently uh, resigned my position at the University of Memphis. This is actually my – I just finished this – this was my final semester – because uh, I'm going to be doing this community engagement work uh, full-time. Um, could you talk to us a little bit about what that community engagement looks like and maybe specifically the own music project that PRISM does? Mm-hmm. Right. So there was – I was really fortunate a few years ago, there was a program here uh, through uh, Arts Memphis, who was essentially the Arts Council here in the city of Memphis, and they had a community engagement fellowship. Uh, and PRISM was one of the organizations that was selected, and I was the representative of PRISM in this fellowship. And it was great because it was, we really got a almost like a PhD, or I would say maybe a master's, a master's in community engagement work from an arts perspective. Um, and it was really an opportunity for us not to only be able to see the city, but to also to meet community leaders, to learn about what community engagement work looks like. There was this brilliant woman who was named Linda Steele. Um, actually, that program won a uh, Guard Award from the Americans for the Arts. I mean, it's a really great program. Um, and so uh, PRISM, um, throughout that program, we, we met community leaders, and one of the people that we met 
was the um, the director of a program or an organization called the Orange Mount Outreach Ministries. And that place had, they had a bunch of instruments in there, but they didn't have anyone to teach those instruments. Um, and so we partnered with them to create um, uh, what I think was like a 16-week uh, engagement program. So all the youth who were participating and attending this Orange Mount Outreach Ministries, they also got to learn musical instruments. So it was PRISM, and we also partnered with um, schools, the Visible Community Music School. And so they taught popular music instruments. And then on the PRISM side, we taught clarinet, bassoon, uh, flute, and violin. And it was great. It was an amazing program just being able to be in that community and be a force in that community. It was really great. Um, not only were we working with the youth, but, you know, we were invited to a lot of the community events and we worked with them there. We were, we got to do some work with the Orange Mound Revitalization Project. And Orange Mound as a community is really strong, uh, predominantly African American community here. It was one of the first uh, communities in the United States to be built uh, by and for African Americans, and so to be able to have a program there was was really powerful for us, and it was actually one of the things that helped us to find our identity. Why was it so important um, for you to um, take a bigger step in um, community engagement and diversifying classical music? I know as a pre-tenured person, the idea of getting tenure is like the, the um, what am I looking for? The gold at the end of the rainbow. <laughs> so once you got tenure, you know, you said you were um, working at the University of Memphis for 12 years, I believe. Mm-hmm. And yeah. um, what led you to step away from that and engage more in um, the work you were doing with PRISM? Well, to be honest, um, you know, uh, having been a, yeah, you may not know this, but I've been a black man my whole life, right? <laughs> uh, um, and, um, you know, I've been connected with the Sphinx organization out of Detroit for a long time, almost from the beginning. Um, and a few years ago, I went to, uh, Sphinx Con. They had a, uh, they have a conference, uh, where it's really about how to diversify the arts. And when I was there and I was listening to all these people talk about um, talk about diversity and, and talk about how they were making attempts to diversify the arts, I just remember thinking, wow, this is so lazy. Um, we're just so behind. And then I started to look inward and look at even look at my own organization, organization that I was leading. Um, and I realized that on some level we were behind, too. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say that we were lazy because I think we were well-intentioned, but it was really going to that conference that first year where I realized that I was going to stop holding the organization accountable for its effort and for its intent and really start to hold the organization accountable for its outcomes and its impact. Um, and that was a, a big change for us. I was fortunate that I had a board, you know, predominantly white board, but they were on, they, they were behind behind me the whole way, uh, and I really credit them for that um, because I basically said, hey, as a board, you know, we need to diversify the board because we can't say that we want to reach students of color without saying that the leadership represents the students that we want to reach. Um, and then I started to think, oh, wow, we don't, there aren't very many classical musicians of color in this community, so how can we do that? 
Um, and so we we realized that the only way to do that, instead of lamenting the fact that they weren't there, it was to say, hey, we're working with these youth. Why don't we create the next generation of you know musicians of color who can do this work? Um, because I and I think that was really really powerful for us. It's like fundraising. You know, if you don't have donors, then you start to cultivate relationships with them, you know? And so that was really what we did was go cultivating relationships and creating this, um, this pipeline of young people that we could have doing this work. Um, and I remember that a lot of those kids, they looked at me and they thought that I was great. And I remember that. I remember that feeling as a young black student. Every time I was in a space where there was, you know, a black man or a black woman who was playing music, I just felt this connection to them. Um, and it wasn't, and, and that actually did matter. Uh, and I tell people all the time, I've never had a white man tell me that I reminded him of himself when he was my age. Never once have I had that. Um, and so, and, and that meant that he was connect. those men connected with me just as much as I connected with them. Uh, but I've had dozens of black men who said that to me. Uh, and so representation is something that really matters. Uh, and so that was, I mean, to me, that was that was really the beginning of the end of that life for me, of being able to just kind of accept the way that things were, um, and then the beginning of a new life in which I just did it. And um, that's where I am right now. I totally hear you on that. As a person of color, I remember very well the first time I ever saw a photo of the Amani Wins and what a formative uh, moment that was in my life. I still remember where I was and I remember all of those feelings. Um, what would you say to someone who um, perhaps even very innocently doesn't understand why diversity is important in the arts and in classical music? Yeah, you know what? It's funny. I'm just coming for a meeting where I was having this exact <laughs> this exact conversation. Um, why is diversity important? You know, and there, of course, everyone knows a lot of the metrics. So what is it, around 2050, um, you know, more than half of the country is going to be people of color. Uh, just the demographics of the entire country is changing. Um, and I think that those who don't acknowledge that fact are the ones who are going to be behind. That's kind of from an economic perspective. But just from a human perspective, I think that um, people tend to view people who aren't like them. They view them as a monolith. You know, you hear people say that women do this or you know, homosexuals are this way or um, black people are this way, white people are this way. Um, and that tends to happen when people are very isolated. But, you know, research has even shown that the more diverse a, a group is, um, the, the, the higher the quality that there are, the, the, the more equipped they are to be able to, to solve problems. Um, and from a human perspective, um, no, diversity gives you an opportunity to humanize other people, for you to be able to say that that group is not a monolith. That is someone's mother. That's someone's son. Um, that's someone's daughter. That's someone's wife. Um, and so instead of saying black people are this way, you know, you can actually look and say, you know what, uh, uh, Lacolian is actually not a bad guy. Or some people may say he's a jackass, but I would say that, <laughs> you know, a lot of people would say that, you know, you know, you know that Jackie, she's she's great. And so to say that, I'm saying something. I'm, I'm including, you know, Jackie. I'm including Lacolian. I'm including Galit in that in that group. Um, and so I, I think that oftentimes when people are isolated, they are able to view people as monolith. 
but when your diversity really opens up the conversation. And I can tell you one thing from my own organization's perspective. Uh, we're a very small organization, but we started to make so many waves, and, it, and diversity was the, the key to that because our thinking is just so – a lot of the thinking is so far ahead. Um, when, I, when I talk to some large organizations, it just, it just trips me out because I'm like, man, you haven't figured that one out yet, you know? Um, you're still having that conversation um, and so that's, you know, I just just think that that's the the wave of the future is that, is that you have to be, you have to acknowledge that everyone in this country exists and everyone in this country has value. And when you are a diverse organization, what you're saying is I actually value that voice and not for optics reasons, not because I want to have a woman's uh, face here, but I want her to, you know, toe the company line. You know, but because I actually need that voice. I'm a better organization. We're a better company. We're a better school because those voices are here. And on the flip side, we're worse without them. I'm curious if you have already seen the positive effects of the Prism Ensemble and what that looks like. Yes. Um, I would say yes. From a, a local perspective, yes, we're starting to, you know, we're seeing that young people of color are actually, you know, reaching out to us. They're, they're finding us now, uh, which means that we have started to create a certain kind of value for ourselves and value for the work that we do, which is great. Um, a beautiful thing is that we're starting to see that the young people who are coming out of our programs, they're not only interested in becoming wonderful musicians, but we can see that they have a social justice mindset to them, which was really an unintended consequence. Um, but it's happened nonetheless. There's one young girl, her name is Journey. Great. She's always a wonderful violinist, but she would tell you that, you know, prison really changed her perspective on her life. Now she's going off to college. She's a senior in high school this year, and she's going to get um, a degree in arts management because, you know, arts administration, she said, because I really want to create a program just like prison. Um, and that is, you know, very humbling to me, and I think it's humbling to our entire team that we've had that impact on that person because I know that she's a, she's an awesome human being. And I'm sure that's going to happen for her. She's going to impact so many people, and just knowing that we were able to be a part of that um, is, um, again, it's very humbling. But I think that from a community perspective, I think that our success and, and, and the fact that we're starting to grow is really starting to change some of the mindsets of others in the community as well, uh, not just in classical music, but I think overall, I think that everyone's kind of looking at themselves and like, man, this small operation, why are they getting all this national, international press uh, for this work that they're doing? Um, wow, maybe we should be, maybe we should start looking at ourselves, looking at ourselves in the mirror and start seeing that, hey, maybe we should try to be more inclusive also because I think what people are starting to realize is that they're being exclusive. You know, they're not inviting others to be a part of what they're doing. And when they do invite them, it's in a way that's lazy, and sometimes it's in a way that's very condescending. Um, and people of color can see that. And I think that's what gets lost a lot, is that people can see when you decide that you're going to, on Cinco de Mayo, decide to play a piece by a Latin American or Black History Month, that's the one period of the year in which you play pieces by black composers. And I say all the time, hey, listen, guys, I'm black all year. <laughs> you know, I would love yeah. to see the black composers all year, 
we, Prism has a chamber music festival this summer, and, you know, when we sent things out to, we have the faculty recommend music, and we told them, um, when you recommend music, half the pieces you recommend have to either be by women composers or by people of color. You know, so if you're going to recommend Schumann, then you got to recommend Joan Tower, right? Like, you know, I just, and, and that's the, it's not one of those things that you can do periodically. You have to have certain things in the fabric of your being. Otherwise, they come across as disingenuous, and the people who you're trying to reach can see it. They can see it, and it actually disgusts them. And I think that's what people don't realize, is that when you're saying you're trying to reach out to the LGBTQ community, and you, like, play Tchaikovsky one day, and that's the one you want them to come to, you know, people are, people are offended by that. Mm. You know, and so... Uh, and I think that we're starting to show that. Um, and I think that, you know, the fact that we're starting to grow is actually really making um, making a lot of folks look at themselves in the mirror. Uh, not maybe they're looking at us saying what we're doing, um, but I think they're also looking at themselves and saying, man, we don't know how to do this. How can we do this better? Um, and I think there are some are getting it better than others, um, because to be honest, you can't have um, you can't have lack of diversity in a room that's coming up with plans. You know, like if you have, if I was to have an all black room trying to figure out how to, you know, reach white people, (laughs) like I may not, it may not work for me. If we have a bunch of men who are trying to figure out how they can recruit more women, like they're probably going to do it in a way that's not going to work. It's going to be ineffective. Mm -hmm. And that's what tends to happen. You have, you know, these, uh, these rooms that are not very diverse and they're trying to figure out how they can attract um, you know, marginalized groups. It's like, we well, don't have any marginalized groups in the conversation, so how are you supposed to know? Mm-hmm. And also what they're saying when they don't have them there is they don't actually value their opinion. Me, that's a problem. Right. So our listeners, um, some of them may be involved in leadership and administration, but um, I think most of them are probably performers, teachers, and students. And for um those who are listening to your words and really picking up what you're putting down and, and feeling inspired to take action, what suggestions do you have for them to put the type of things you're suggesting into tangible acts as individuals and perhaps even subordinates or still students? Right. I would say, you know, I, I, I've thought about this recently just from a repertoire perspective. Um, when, you know, I tell my students now that you know, I'm really committed to diversity and trying to find music that connects with me on some level. I think I just may tend to play it better. Um, and so, um, and also it's something that I think I should know. I think I should know if there are any uh, African-Americans who've written music for the bassoon. Um, and so with some of my students, I tell them if they, uh, if they want to think about their own heritage or things that speak to them, whether they want to go from a gender perspective, um, if they want to go from a regional perspective, if you want, that's fine. Um, but if you're a female bassoonist, maybe you can try to identify works by female composers, and maybe you can make that as a requirement uh, for your students. That as, you know, before you graduate, I would like for you to pick something that's culturally relevant to you, however you define that, and maybe see if you can't find a piece that you play by someone who might connect with you in a way that you connect with them on a human level not just on a repertoire level. I mean, I did plan, you know, Mill Day studies, but, you know, um, that Nancy Galbraith piece is a good piece, you know, so why aren't people playing that? 
Um, and, you know, so that's one thing I think from, uh, from uh, just a teaching perspective. Um, and the, that, rep- that repertoire is out there. I think it sometimes it takes a little bit of, uh, of research. But if you teach your students that way and you show them that you value them as human beings, I think that that allows you to connect with them sometimes a little bit better. It's like, you know what? I want you to know that you have something to offer to this conversation just as much as I do. Um, and so, you know, maybe you can find something that gets inside your own heritage. Uh, when you're thinking about, um, when I think about leadership, um, I think the leadership should be thinking to itself, who are the people who are in the conversations that they're, that they're having? When they're making certain kinds of decisions, um, how actively are they doing that? When you're thinking about the caterers that you hire, when you're thinking about your internal staff, when you're thinking about your, the people who support your organization, are you actually reaching out to people of color in a way that's genuine? Are you inviting them to be on your advisory councils and party on your boards? Um, you know, are you looking at, you know, every reception and saying, wow, have, is our guest list, does there any diversity there? Um, you know, when, when you send out an email, are you looking at that group and saying, wow, am I reaching out to as many different people that I can think of? And some people think that that is a difficult thing to do. But actually, I think the opposite is lazy. Was that part of the motivation, going back to repertoire, um, behind your album Legacy? It was, actually. Um, that was a project. Actually, one of my former colleagues at uh, the University, University of Missouri, that was my first job out of school. Her name is Marcia Spence. She's the horn professor there. And, um, you know, I mentioned to her that, you know, you know, I think that one of my tenure projects, I'd love it to, you know, I'd love to record a CD. And she said, have you ever thought about uh, recording, uh, you know, music by black composers? And I was like, uh, no. And I was kind of embarrassed that it never occurred to me to do that. Um, and so when I got the job in Memphis, I, you know, and, and when I moved to a city that was predominantly black, you know, 60% black, um, I was like, wow, I have to do this. I mean, it makes so much sense to do that, to do this, this project, particularly in this city. And it was, um, it was really a, I found out a lot about myself. Uh, in that project, as much as I learned about um, the repertoire, I also learned about myself a little bit in there too. Um, and that was that, as a classical musician, I realized that if you, as a person of color, I almost felt forced to give up part of my identity in order to fit into my surroundings, and I'd really allowed that to happen to me. And that was um, that was a tough thing to face. That there were these composers, there was this music that was on my own instrument. None of them, you know, it was all old. I mean, it wasn't like they were pieces that were uh, I commissioned one work, but the rest of them were pieces that exist, and I'd never even heard of them. And so that was something that was um, uh, that was actually transformative for me as a person as well to realize how much of myself that I had put on the back burner in order for me to be successful in the field. Um, and, you know, now when I think about that, I think about who I am now um, and the fact that I've been able to, on some level, you know, come out of that shell and really be who I've always been. Um, I would never want to go back to that. It was really that project that was one of the early pieces in that transformation because I started to get these requests to participate in, 
um, in, in black programs. My wife used to, we used to talk about it all the time, you know, that, you know, I was always busy in February. Uh, every weekend in February, I was always gone. Someone was always called, you know, bringing me out to be a part of a Black History Month celebration. And then, you know, the phone would go dead. I'm a bassoonist, right? <laughs> so the phone would kind of go dead for a while. But, you know, February, I was always really busy. And, um, but what that was, the good thing about that was I was meeting all these people of color. I mean, all these, not black, only black musicians, but uh, black supporters of the arts all over the country. Um, and also there was this generation of, black bassoonists who knew that knew that CD and that was one of the things that um, allowed that for them was uh, you know, like Jackie mentioned it's one of the things that was you know, inspirational to them and I did not expect that um, but you know really I, I really love that that is as I'm moving out of performing um, you know, more regularly it's nice that I get to have that CD that's entitled Legacy What was your learning curve like um, as a musician moving into arts administration? Wow. Um, it has been great, actually. Uh, I've really enjoyed this transition. Um, I remember I, I took a sabbatical a couple of years ago, and I remember when I first really got more deeply into the work, I was able to do it you know, kind of all day, every day, without having to juggle Read making inside, <laughs> uh, you know, scraping on reads and you know, playing long tones. You know, I took a little bit of time and just kind of learned, um, you know, learned about this field. And I remember that my brain was just so active. There were all these things that, you know, parts of my brain I didn't even know that I had, but they were super, super active. Um, they were super active during that period of time, and so the initial transition was kind of challenging i think just because it was just new but um i think that as a musician we learn uh we learn analysis we have this great ability to utilize metacognition um where we can analyze ourselves and change and, um, we have this goal-directed persistence these are all these um what do they call them pieces of executive function that you, you try to teach to children and those skills were actually transferable. I mean, anybody who can sit in a, in a little room blowing long tones and scraping on a reed for hours and hours on end and stay super focused, uh, being able to make a PowerPoint presentation isn't that difficult. Right? <laughs> um, and anybody who can get up uh, and like bear their soul um, as a musician and, and invite people into their minds and into their hearts, um, Anyone who can do that and feels comfortable doing that, well, I think if you move into uh, fundraising and you have an organization that you really care about, and that, that's really what, you know, what fundraising is. It's, it's telling people how much you care, how much this thing matters, um, but also really inspiring them, you know, inspiring them to action. And that's what we do with music as well. Um, you know, we can inspire people. You know, when people are applauding and clapping and throwing babies in the air, you know, and that whole thing, you know, that, that, that comes from us. We, we give that to people. And, you know, a nonprofit, particularly one that's, you know, centered on social justice and youth development and diversity and equity and access and opportunity and all those things, um, you, you're doing the same thing just in a different way. So the transition wasn't that, wasn't as challenging as I expected. Um, and the fact that I've been able to, I feel like I'm starting to grow in this work, um, it's been it's been really rewarding, but I am using a lot of the same skills that I 
used as a bassoonist. Just really that commitment to something and that just um, laser focus on trying to get to that end result. Um, you know, those skills you, you learn in that, I learned in that little practice room, in those practice rooms at the University of Texas in the Manhattan School of Music. In your piece for Classical Music Magazine, Why Settle for Less, you talk about, and you've referred to earlier, being the only one, and also reference, um, you know, kind of the things that people say openly to you without necessarily knowing um, that they're perhaps being offensive. Do you ever get exhausted by being this representative? Um, and how do you kind of, you know, approach self-care and enduring through, you know, kind of having to be this explainer and this pioneer in these ideas that perhaps shouldn't even be so radical in 2017? Right. It's it, To be honest, it's funny to hear you say that because, when you say I don't, I don't actually feel that I'm a pioneer. Um, you know, I, I, mean, I, I mean, I get it. I hear what you're saying, but it's uh, I don't necessarily feel that. You know, and, and maybe I'll get there, but uh, right now I'm not sure that I do. But what I would say, um, what I would say is that yes, it is exhausting. But I would say that as a you know, as any person who exists in a marginalized group is exhausted when they have to deal with those things. I think that anyone who has uh, been an outspoken, you know, um, you know, a, a, an outspoken champion of women's rights or, uh, you know, rights of, of LGBTQ community or, um, you know, any other rights that you can think of dealing with civil rights, you end up, um, it, it, that can be very tiring. And so you do have to sometimes, go into a space where you're with people who you don't have to explain things to. Um, so I'm fortunate, uh, especially in a city like Memphis, to have that there is a great black community here where you like, I can go into that community um, and just be able to be myself um, and allow myself to be energized and be able to go back out into the world because you're right. But the truth is I have, as I said before, I've been a black man my whole life. So I've been the only one in many spaces I've been one of a few my entire career. Um, I have been the person who's been on stage with the only one, um, looking out into the audience, seeing a bunch of people who don't look like me. Um, a bunch of people who are, and so like I, I, on some level, you get used to that experience. Um, and, and for me, I realize it more now as I'm starting to shift my focus, um, how, and I would I would tell anyone who is around a musician of color, I would want to say, I hope that people around that person knows how much of a, it's such, it's very heavy to be able to deal with the microaggressions that happen throughout your day. And some, and we know that they're unintentional, um, but they exist nonetheless. And those things are heavy, heavy weight. And um, you learn to live with them. Um, in a way that, you know, I, my mother passed away, um, you know, several years ago, and I, I lived with that, that pain because I, my mother and I were, were very close. Um, and that's one of those things you learn to live with. And for persons of people, for people of color, you live with that, that weight of, um, you know, of those microaggressions that happen to you on an hourly and daily basis. You live with the having to determine 
how much and to what degree you have to code switch depending on the environment that you're in. And I was actually at a, at a conference not that long ago, and I said code switching, and people didn't even know what it was. <laughs> uh, you know, I, that, that tripped me out, you know, that I had to actually unpack that for a group of people, that code switching is actually a thing. And, um, you know, that's something that, you know, I had to do my entire career, and I still have to do it from time to time, but it's something that you have to, you know, you have to deal with, right? It's like, you know, and to what degree do must I code switch for, uh, for this environment, the environment that I'm in? Um, and so, you know, but so for me, self-care is I'm an avid napper. I like to take naps. <laughs> um, I believe in that. Uh, I need to recharge my brain. Uh, I'm fortunate that I have a great family. Uh, my wife and my two sons and our dog Shadow, uh, that is a place where I, I, I get strength from them. Um, and that, and I'm, I feel very fortunate with that. Um, I also have, um, um, a lot of people who, like, like what you guys were saying, from time to time, I get these, you know, emails and calls from people who are like, man, way to go. I'm so glad that that happened. On the flip side, I also get the, you know, I don't know why you're talking about diversity. Only thing that matters is, uh, the quality in which people play. It's music. You know, it's not, you know, whatever. And, you know, so I get those two. Um, but there's still, I still know there's a, a lot of people in the world who believe that this work is important. And so, you know, as much as people, as much as, you know, people are saying that this work is inspiring to them, I also gain strength from those who, um, not only those who are doing the work, like the Sphinxes and the Gateways and, you know, all these other organizations that are really committed to uh, providing opportunities for people of color and also providing integrated experiences and things that are equitable, like I, and that are very inclusive, uh, I gain strength from them as well. So, um, but just hope people know that, that uh, I will speak for those who maybe don't speak on their, on their own behalf, but it is very, it's very tiring. Um, and it, it, it's, it's very tiring for, especially in classical music, because you, on some level, you have to deny certain pieces of your own identity in order to be able to be successful. And that is, um, that, that shouldn't be the case, but it's just the way that it is the way, it's the way that it currently is. And to be honest, I'm one, I actually want to call it out uh, for what it is. Um, so what has the reception been like for the work that you're doing? Has it been mostly positive or has it been kind of a mixed bag? I would say that it's been a mixed bag for sure. Um, I think that there, more often than not, there are some who um, question my motives uh, more than anything. They question the intent. Um, you know, um, I would say that that's been, uh, there are some who are just glad that the work is happening and that I'm, I'm that these conversations are happening and that, and that, you know, folks like, you know, myself and the Stanford Thompsons of the world and, um, you know, the, uh, who else, you know, Alex Lang and, and they have all these foundations that are now doing this work. Uh, you know, the Mellon Foundation is supporting the work and Knight Foundation and Ford. And you really have all these really, uh, you know, it's, it's as if I am you know, trying to jump on the bandwagon. Uh, so I get a little bit of that, but the truth is, um, and you know, I, I say this a lot, um, uh, and I've said this multiple times, but as I said, I have been a black man my whole life. I didn't just become black, uh, because it became fashionable. 
you know, <laughs> when it became fashionable. I mean, I've been that way. Uh, I was born that I was born a black man in America. And so um, I do feel that um, there are some who question, you know, because I have really gone through this, this um, philosophical shift uh, on my, you know, this, my life has taken me on this new path. Um, I think there are some that definitely question my, my motives. Um, and, but I would say that, in in order to do transformative work, you have to um, you have to be willing to take on some of that. Um, I would say that if you you can't you can't keep things the same and change them at the same time. You can't protect everyone's feelings um, all the time and do transformative work. Um, you know, especially you can't protect the feelings of those who may have thrived in the certain uh, inequities and um, that, that existed. You know, you can't, you can't do both. You can't say that those things are bad, but, you know, I agree that they're bad, but I don't want to change them. Um, I think that inertia is what's been happening for a long time. And now you're starting to get people who realize that that's happening um, and they're starting to make efforts to change it. There's a great book on that I read. It's called, uh, What's it called? Dog Whistle Racism it's by a guy named Ian Haney Lopez. It's a really great book, and it really helped me when I was thinking through what I what I wanted to be as a human being and the world in which I existed. And that was a really great book. It just kind of let me know that I'm I'm not reinventing the wheel. These are things that actually exist, um, and they've existed for generations. Um, and it's okay to not dog whistle to not say. We would like to be more inclusive, right, which is dog whistling, right? I can say, man, y'all need to meet some black people, right? <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? Like, you know, that's, that's what I mean. I mean, if, you know, like I say, in Memphis, Memphis is a perfect example. Memphis is a place that's 60% black, and it's almost 70% people of color, you know? I mean, it's, that's just the demographics of the city. So, like, I tell people, if you walk into a place and you don't see any black people or any people of color, that must be by design because it should be mathematically impossible. Mm. Right? The numbers would say that you shouldn't be able to do that. And so if you do that, there's something that's happening. There's something systemically happening that's making that so. And it's important to acknowledge that. Uh, And and where I am right now, I'm I'm doing that. Uh, And I want to do that. And I actually want to be able to be a model for the way that things could be. And so when we when we make an orchestra, you know, we had a prison chamber orchestra, and that orchestra was sixty percent black. Uh, and when we in our ch- prison chamber music festival, we make sure that more than half of that group is people of color, and more than half of it's women. And we make sure that as we try to make sure it's predominantly African American because that's the community in which we live. It's not because we're trying to make a statement. It's just saying, hey, we're listening to what our community is. Um, and so for here, it, here it's actually a quite a bit easier to do that work um, because we are able to frame everything around, hey, I'm not trying, we're not trying to be controversial. We're just being what our community is. That's all. That's it. And so that makes it a little bit easier for us. So we've spent a lot of time and, and should con- continue the conversations about how to build a more diverse musical community, of course, and those are important conversations. But in closing, um, I would want to know what words you have for 
um, those people who are listening who are the only one, whatever that looks like to them, right, who do serve as that monolith and are having the experiences that you're talking about. Um, what words do you have for those people? Yeah, I would say that something that you mentioned before uh, is important. I think that, you know, um, acknowledge that, that that's something. If, if it's, there's some people who um, they are, they may feel less impacted by that than others, depending on where you were born and raised. Uh, you know, I was, I grew up in a predominantly black community. Um, and so that my experience is one thing. If you did not grow up that way, maybe you wouldn't feel, you know, maybe you would feel differently. Um, but, uh, I would say that if you're someone who definitely is someone who walks into a room and automatically notices that you're the only one of something, um, I think that you should uh, not feel bad about that. You should be, you should feel comfortable embracing that um, because that what you're noticing is part of who you are. And I would say keep the parts, keep that part of you. Don't ever let anyone or anywhere or any place take that from you uh, because that part of you has value um, and you should never let anyone devalue part of your identity ever. Um, and so if I was to say anything, I would say that um, hold on to your identity. It has value. There are people in the world and people even in your community who value that part of you. And I would tell you to try to find those people. Um, and I would also um, tell uh, tell them, you know, not to allow others to take to try to take that value away from you, um, because your who you are has value, and there is and there are places for you, and make sure that you find them, um, because that was something that was a challenge for me in, in this community. I, I I felt like there was that parts of me didn't have value. Um, and when I got into a space, I remember the first time one of my colleagues at MMI, I said something to him, and he looked at me. He was like, wait a minute, you're from where I'm from, right? <laughs> and I remember that because I saw in his eyes where he was like, you know what? Of all the things you've done, you performed all over the world, and you started this nonprofit, but that thing that I saw in you in that moment, that thing had value, and I'm glad that I showed it to him. And I'm glad that I still had it because um, part of that was taken, part of that I, I put into a box. I won't say that it was taken away from me because I wouldn't empower the rest of the world, you know, that way for me. Uh, but I think part of those things I put into a box. Um, and I feel great that I can take them out. And so I would tell others, I put them into a box for a long time, and I would tell others, don't put them in that box. You know, be you, you have value. And I know I think so, um, and I would imagine there's a community of people who think you have value also. Amen. Well, thank you so much for coming on. We can't uh, thank you enough. We are going to link in the video description to um, Lacolian's organization, um, the Prism Ensemble. We'll also link to his article, Why Settle for Less, and also his album, Legacy, Works for Bassoon by African-American Composers. Lacolian, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. And there's also a write-up in Chamber Music America. So if you want to read more about the Prism Ensemble, check out Chamber Music Magazine uh, this month. And there's, they mention Prism in there as well. Very cool.